joined us. If you are a visitor, let me invite you to open up to the book of Jonah with me. Uh, Jonah is where we'll be this morning. One of the Old Testament prophets, one of the minor prophet books, the book of Jonah. A very famous story in the Old Testament. You probably know the basic details of the story. We'll continue in our sermon series that we started last week by looking at Jonah. Chapter 2, we'll pick it up at the very end of chapter 1. I believe it's page 774 in your ESV hardbacks uh, underneath the seats around you. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was in Miami with a group of students, and we were there for some mission work and to do some sightseeing, and we were getting transported around Miami in these 15-passenger vans that we had rented. So it was my first experience driving a 15-passenger van. (coughs) If you've never had the experience of doing so, it's something else. I will be okay if I never do it again in my life. Um, so we had two 15-passenger vans and 30 kids, and it was just really chaotic and really hectic. We get there, and as soon as we arrive, the skies open up, and it's like the flood, point two, and you can't see within five feet in front of your car, and we've got vans packed with luggage to the ceiling, seven kids a row, uh, and we're trying to navigate down through Miami with, with these passenger vans. Um, the second night we were there, we were the leaders that we were with decided it would be a good idea to take us to a little hole-in-the-wall Cuban restaurant uh, in downtown Miami, about 45 minutes away. And so we packed up the vans with all the kids. Mind you, this is after very hard days, uh, day-long of work and sunburn and all these things. Uh, we get in the van and we go. Now here's the thing with two 15-passenger vans. I've got my iPhone. The other driver has her iPhone. And for whatever reason, because the world works this way... Everywhere we went that week, we would both type in the same address, and it would give us different directions. And so we would pick one of the directions to follow, right? And say, okay, we'll go with yours, and I'll follow you. And if you get lost, if you lose me somehow, I'll try to go with mine, and we'll see if we end up at the same place. We often did not end up at the same place, um, as it works. Technology has come a long way, but we still have troubles with downtown Miami uh, and our little Apple Maps on iPhone. And so we were going to this Cuban place. We got, of course, two different directions. And so we said, we'll follow you. I'll just follow you. I don't want to have to be looking at the directions. I'm driving through downtown Miami, which, if you're not aware, has horrible streets and equally horrible drivers. Uh, and so we follow her for about 45 minutes. And my iPhone, the whole time, is telling me that we're taking the wrong turns and going the wrong directions. But I'm like, we're trusting her directions. We're going with her. 45 minutes later, she pulls into a Walgreens. I'm pretty sure we're nowhere near the Cuban restaurant. And I get out, and she says, this is where it took me. We're here. We're at a dead end, okay? And so we had spent 45 minutes. The kids are very hungry at this point, and they're being very snarky and sarcastic, um, very dramatic. There's talks of suicide if we don't get food soon. I'm like, y'all are being way too dramatic. In my own mind, I'm like, I'm going to kill myself if we don't. So... We pull over and we're like, all right, here's what we'll do. Since my directions gave me a different location, I'll go to that location. You can follow me. So I'll take the lead. So I took the lead. We drove for another good 45 minutes until I ended up in a back alley with no restaurants around us. And I pulled over and she got out and I said, this is where it took me. Uh, and so by this point, it has been a, already a miserable night. Uh, we end up having to call the restaurant, drive about 30 more minutes to finally get to the restaurant and show up after about two and a half hours Uh, to enjoy a meal, which none of us really enjoyed very much. Um, It was a frustrating night, uh, to say the least. And I'll tell you what, if you've never driven, so beyond driving 15-passenger vans in downtown Miami, if you've never driven with a group of kids who just took their driver's test, 
It is, I believe, the second level of hell. Um, there are apparently these rules that you're supposed to follow on the road, and talk about backseat driving, right? Mr. Skinner, you're supposed to have your blinker on for 100 feet before you turn. I'm like, kids, listen up. Here's how an adult drives. They get from point A to point B without hitting anything or getting pulled over. It's, I cannot tell you how miserable it is to drive with 15 small-minded people who know every rule there is about driving. It's miserable. So we get to, we get to the Cuban restaurant. It's not the greatest experience of our lives. We get back to the hostel, which we were staying in, which is another story in and of itself. And I'm trying to give a pep talk to the kids. And we kind of get on this detour, and, and we're talking about, you know what, tonight is a lot like life, if we're honest. Um, life is a lot of dead ends, and a lot of sometimes following other people for 45 minutes for what seems like an eternity, and realizing it led us nowhere. And then we take the lead, and we're following other people, and we realize it leads us nowhere. And we feel frustrated, and we feel overwhelmed. And then that one thing we hoped for, that one thing we've been journeying after for so long, oftentimes ends up being flat, ends up being empty, ends up having nothing to offer to us. And I tell that story because we're in the season of Lent uh, as a, a church body. It's the season where we prepare to celebrate Easter, and a season where we think through all the different ways that we have disobeyed, where, where we have fallen into sin. If we're honest, our lives, even as Christians, are full of these kind of detours, are full of these kind of dead ends. Um, we often take the wrong turn. Uh, we often go down these frustratingly empty paths with our lives. Um, and luckily, the, the story that we're in in these four weeks, the story of Jonah, is a story about this big detour, right? If anyone's ever experienced a detour, it's Jonah. And we'll learn a lot from this morning's text about how you and I can deal with the detours we find in our life. If we were to um, take a couple minutes and have a pen and piece of paper, I think all of us in this room could go around and probably write out some of the detours that we've taken in our lives, in our walks with God. Maybe we thought we would end up in A, location A, and we really ended up in location C. Or maybe we thought we'd get there in a month or a year, and it really took us five years or ten years. Or maybe due to circumstances out of our control, things that other people did to us, we ended up in a bad, unfortunate circumstance. Or maybe it was our own fault. I mean, maybe we know exactly what we did wrong to get us into um, this, this unfortunate location that we're at. Um, the Christian life is full of detours. Um, but we'll learn from the man himself, Jonah, this morning, a few lessons about detours. So if you'll read with me, we'll begin in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Just to recap the story, uh, in case you're not familiar with it, Jonah has been told by God to go preach to Nineveh. That's the capital city of Assyria. Jonah hates these people. He does not want to go and preach to them, give them a chance to be saved. So he heads in the opposite direction. He takes a detour from God's plan. He gets on this boat going in the opposite direction. God sends a storm, and they throw him overboard in order to save the sailors. And so we'll see Jonah take another detour now that he's in the water here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows <coughs> passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So four lessons that I want to look at here from this story about um, what it means to be on a detour, to find yourself on a detour. Many of us can probably think of times when we have disobeyed or ended up in a situation that we were not expecting or hoping to be in. Um, perhaps we're there right now. I mean, perhaps some of us are in that um, traveling, in that path of detouring, where we know we're kind of off the path that God has for us. What are some lessons we can learn from Jonah? I think there are four um, that we can explore this morning. Here's the first lesson. No detour, no um, wrong turn on our journey through life ever takes us too far away from God. No detour ever takes us too far away from the Lord's presence and his hand and his deliverance. Jonah is symbolically and actually as far away from God as a human being can be. So the sea to the ancient Near Eastern people represented all of the chaotic and destructive forces in the world. Um, the sea was full of these sea monsters, the Leviathan and Rahab. We often um, skip over them when we're reading the Old Testament, but the Old Testament authors would make use of these kind of mythological creatures uh, and say that, yes, the sea is this scary and dangerous place full of these sea monsters, but even then, God himself is the one who created these monsters. He controls them. Um, there's this classic line in Job where the scriptures talk about God playing with Leviathan like a pet. Um, the most dangerous and destructive forces in creation are still under the watch and still under the control of the Lord. Jonah is living out, actually, an ancient nightmare, which is being thrown into the sea, being thrown into the depth, being thrown into the abyss. Not only that, but being swallowed by the sea monster. I mean, he's living out one's worst nightmare. He's symbolically representing all who have gone off the path and who have found themselves in the depth, in the pit, who have found themselves dead inside and perhaps outside. Jonah lives out this story. Um, this is uh, the sea motive, the sea being this place of destruction and chaos is prevalent throughout the scriptures. Um, and this is why it's so dramatic when you see statements in the scriptures, such as the Lord, the God of Israel, made and rules over the sea. Um, ancient people thought the sea again was this crazy chaotic place, particularly because no God had dominion there. Um, God's rule in temples. There are no temples in the ocean. This is one of the things that made the ocean such a scary place. There's nowhere you can go to make sacrifices or to offer a, a vow to a God to protect you. But the Israelites had this very deep faith that even in the sea, God was in control. And Jonah lives this out. He goes into the sea. He goes into the belly of the fish. This kind of horrific experience, but even the, the horrific experience of being swallowed up by this fish is, in a sense, God's mercy on Jonah. God, we're, we're told, has appointed this fish for Jonah. Uh, he's swallowed up in it. We, we see later on, Jonah comes out on the other side of this experience. There's no detour we can take. Jonah portrays this better than perhaps any character in the scriptures that gets us out of the hand of God. There's no mistake that you can make. That's so big that God would be unable to bring you back. There is no path that you can walk down 
that leads you so far away that you are unable to find the presence and the joy and the life that the Lord has to give you. We often, I think, when we read through the scriptures, whitewash some of the characters in the scriptures and don't realize how bad, how bad of people they actually were. So let's just take two big examples, two kind of scriptural heroes, uh, per se. First, you've got the Apostle Paul, okay, who writes most of the New Testament, apart from Jesus, is one of the biggest influencers in early Christianity, um, spreads the movement across Europe, launches it worldwide. Paul, though, you remember, before he was a Christian, spent his life murdering other Christians. He was what we would call in our jargon a religious terrorist. Uh, because of zealous religious beliefs he had, he killed people with other beliefs in order to terrify them into not believing and acting in that way anymore. Um, Paul was uh, a religious terrorist. And Paul, again, becomes one of the like, most shining saints of Christianity, a hero to you and I. Now, I've been in a lot of counseling sessions where people tell me something to the effect of they have a hard time believing God loves them. Or they have a hard time believing they can get back to God because they've gone down this certain path or they've done this or this has happened to them. And it usually gets to the point in the conversation where I go, so, you know, what, what's your big secret? What did you do? What, what did you experience? What's the trauma in your heart? And I've never once heard someone say, I've been killing Christians. <laughs> it's been my life goal. I've got a list and I'm going through and killing them. Now, if they do, I've got, I'll be like, I've got a perfect example for you. Paul, okay? God still loves you. God can still save you. God can still do you. Paul, usually there's much smaller scale sins. Um, almost comically so. I mean, when we really, you and I, let's not pretend about it, can be terrible people, right? But, but you, most of us, our deepest, darkest sins are comically small compared to murdering God's own people. Um, yet Paul is able to say, I'm the worst of the sinners, yet God loves me, yet God has saved me, yet God has chosen me. Um, I mean, when you feel the impact of that, I mean, this was a man who deserved to die. This was a man, if anyone ever deserved a death penalty, if anyone ever deserved God's judgment for God to turn his back on them, it was Paul, and yet God loved and used and saved Paul. There's no path you can go down that's too far. Jonah experiences this in the, the guts and the belly of the fish. Or think of King David. Another biblical hero. We grow up hearing about King David. Uh, he's a legendary biblical uh, figure. Um, David, though, was an adulterer and a murderer. David was uh, described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. But if you actually read through David's story, he is often going against God's desires for his life. Uh, in the infamous story, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then kills her husband to try to protect this uh, secret from getting out. Again, an adulterer, a murderer. Um, if you look through most of Scripture's heroes, they, they most have these like very dark past. And, and the, the trick here is some of them aren't past for these characters. If you read through David's story, till the day David dies, he's a murderer and he can't keep his hands off girls. I mean, these are just his two kind of flaws. He just can't, I don't think he conquers it during his lifetime. Yet God loves him and God uses him. And he's this powerful figure in Scripture. So often I think we give ourselves too much credit uh, with our sins and with our disobedience. Um, we think we're bad enough to make God change his mind about us or to make God not be able to love us and accept us and welcome us back home. But there's no path, there's no detour that takes us too far away um, from the Lord. The second thing we learn about detours from this part of the book of Jonah 
is that when we find ourselves in a detour, when we find ourselves off the path, when we find ourselves at the end of a road of disobedience or confusion or doubt, our first and most immediate step has to always be to turn back to God. This is what Jonah does here. He prays. Jonah finds himself in the guts of this fish and he calls out to the Lord. He prays. Um, Now, David does this as well. King David in Psalm 51, um, kind of the perfect example of a prayer of repentance. Keep your fingers here and flip with me to Psalm chapter 51. We'll read (coughs) David's prayer of repentance after he is caught committing adultery and murdering the husband of Bathsheba. During the season of Lent, Christians often read Psalm 51 uh, as a prayer of their own uh, in order to confess their sins and return to the Lord. Psalm 51, verse 1, I'd invite you during this season as we prepare for Easter to to make this prayer your own. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret hearts. Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. David got what Jonah gets, which is your first step when you find yourself in a detour. No matter how bad it is, no matter how off the path you are, is to turn to the Lord. Whatever it looks like, however much you can muster. Christians sometimes have this bad habit of getting in these vicious cycles where we disobey God or we run from God. And then because we think he's so upset and disappointed in us, we run further from him. And what we do is we are cutting ourselves off from the very source of our healing and of our forgiveness. And it's this vicious cycle where we disobey, and because we've disobeyed, we feel like we can't approach God or turn to him, so we continue to disobey. We continue to go further and further away from him until we reach that point where we wake up and we realize no matter how far we are, there's only one move for us. There's only one direction for us to go. And that's back to the Lord with prayer, with whatever it takes. You'll notice in Jonah's prayer, we'll see this in David's prayer as well in Psalm 51. Um, If you are familiar, if you're a very careful biblical reader and you read through Jonah's prayer here, um, particularly with the Psalms, you'll notice that Jonah's prayer could be considered, and I almost feel bad saying this, bland. His prayer is cliché. Um, Jonah's prayer is full of very, very popular verses from the Psalms. It would be like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, if you've been in a a group of people and they're praying. I hesitate to even say this first service, told me they'd never pray in front of me again. Uh, And it seems like someone prays and all they do is mash up like the most used cliches about God in the world and turn that into a prayer. And you're like, have you ever thought an original thought on your own, right? I mean, this is what Jonah's prayer is like. Again, I'm not judging your prayers. Don't. All our deacons are going to drop out now. No one's going to come and pray. Um, but, but going through, if you were to look at a Bible with cross-references, you'd see Psalm, 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 Psalm. This first verse, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I mean, this is a classic refrain throughout the Psalms. 
um, Jonah is mashing up a best of hits of the Psalter. Um, a, a lesson here, repentance is not perfect. And it doesn't have to be. Um, you don't have to find the magic formula in order to turn back to God. You don't have to sit down and come up with the most eloquent words that have ever been spoken in human history. It might even be okay to use other people's words. It might not even be a bad thing. I'm not trying to diss Jonah here for using the Psalms. I think perhaps we could take a cue from him and pray the Psalms. Pray Psalm 51. Pray the prayers of the saints who have gone before us. David's repentance is not perfect by any means. David, in fact, gets a good rep from his repentant prayer in Psalm 51. If you read the story closer, David doesn't repent until he is caught in his sin. Um, David continues to lie about his sin over and over and over again until there's no more lying to be done. Um, David's repentance seems a lot more like, I'm sorry that I got caught, than I'm sorry, if you're familiar with that kind of repentance. Um, But even still, God accepts it. The smallest turn. Repentance is not perfect. Jonah's prayer is cliche. It's bland. Jonah's prayer is also horribly late, right? I mean, this is Timing-wise, this is not a good move on Jonah's part. He's waited until the third night in the belly of the fish to start praying. He probably should have started doing this at least on the boat when the sailors are asking to do that when the storm is coming. Jonah is late. Jonah is unoriginal. Um, Repentance, though, is not called to be perfect. Sometimes we feel like we have to come up with the most eloquent words that we can muster up and have this grandiose act of obedience to prove to the Lord that we're back on his team. And in reality, we've just got to take whatever step we can. We've got to make whatever move we can. Um, like the woman we read in Mark who touched his <coughs> garment. Sometimes that's all we can do is just reach out and touch. Um, the smallest of steps, though, are, are welcomed as um, repentance. You'll notice also Jonah's prayer is in the past tense. It's less an actual prayer than a narrative, a description of Jonah's prayer. He says, I called out, past tense, to the Lord, and he answered me. He has rescued me. It's almost as if Jonah is on the other side of this experience and then narrating his prayer. Um, there's this sense, though, I think, in which Jonah understands proleptically or in the future that God, his answer is already sure. Um, if you are one of God's children, if God's hand is indeed upon you, those who turn to him will find his love, will find his grace, will find his salvation. Um, there's no question to the answer of what will happen when Jonah calls out because of whose God Jonah is. Jonah's God has chosen him. Even in the belly of the fish, he's in God's hand. He's one turn away from God's presence and life and salvation. So the first lesson we learn, no detour takes you too far. The second lesson, our first step has to be to turn to God in repentance. You'll notice Jonah's prayer is not even all that repentant. Uh, If you look at it closely, Jonah does not take a lot of the blame for what's happened to him. David's prayer in Psalm 51 is much more repentant. Jonah's Um, If you you read it, it has a lot of language about God doing things. Uh, So you'll see, he says, God has you, speaking to God, cast me into the deep, in verse 3, into the hearts of the sea. I'm driven away from your sight. Um, You have done these things to me. The third lesson about detours we can learn from Jonah is that one of the things detours should do in our lives, uh, and what I think it does to Jonah a little bit here, is it should teach us that sin is often its own punishment. The sin is often its own punishment. If you were to ask the question, who's responsible for Jonah being in this situation? Um, There are, I think, three possible answers that are all partially correct. One, Jonah's responsible. Out of his own free will, he decided to go opposite direction of where he was supposed to go, not join God on his mission. 
ends up on this stormy sea, ends up in the belly of the fish. It was his fault. It's his responsibility. Two, you could partially say some responsibility goes to the sailors, right? They physically picked him up and threw him out over the, the overboard on the ship. They went into the sea, got into the fishes. So it's, it's their fault. They bear some responsibility, some agency in what happened. Jonah, though, when he talks, places all the agency in God's hands. God did these things to me. Um, I think these are three ways of saying the same thing. Uh, as if you described uh, an event of you falling by saying, I tripped, and also I wasn't looking where I went. Right? Both are true. Both are just different ways of saying the same thing. Um, the deeper lesson, I think, behind this is, um, again, this phrase, I phrase it like this, sin is its own punishment. When we find ourselves in the gut of a fish, in the depths, in a dark and desolate place, it's God's doing, and it's our own doing. And oftentimes, it's other people's doing. Um, and it's God's doing not in the sense that he has abandoned us or is this upset, angry father. It's God's doing in the sense that the world he has created functions in such a way that sin is its own punishment. I can show you this more clearly in verse 8. If you look at verse 8 in the poem, in the, in the prayer, Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is a verse worth underlining, worth memorizing. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. One thing interesting about this verse is Jonah is in the belly of this fish, and he's still talking about other people. All right, He's still talking about people who worship idols and what they deserve to get. Um, Jonah has not learned his lesson, and we'll see throughout the book, does not learn his lesson completely. Um, but the deeper principle behind this verse here, forsake could be translated as forfeit. Um, those who chase after things other than God give up their right, give up their ability, you could say, to receive and experience the Lord's steadfast love. Chesed is the Hebrew word. It's covenant mercy, covenant loyalty. It's, it's the heart of forgiveness and grace that makes God love and pursue and redeem us. And what's at work in this principle is this deeper, more holistic theological idea that God in and of himself is life. He is joy. He is peace. He is light. And when human beings turn from him to anything else, an idol, there's nothing for them to find but death and darkness and despair and tragedy. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God can't give you life outside of himself. Not because he doesn't desire to, but because it doesn't exist. It's not there to be found. Jonah's punished by being thrown into the sea, but the punishment is inherent in his sin. There's no other result for Jonah's trajectory when he runs away from God than to end up in the sea. Scriptures say sin leads to death. Death is inherently in sin. Um, you and I, when we run from God, what we find is we find tragedy. We find heartbreak. One of the things that detours should hopefully teach us, because we'll all go on them, I mean, we all still have these hopes that there are certain things in our lives which will give us life and joy and peace and hope. And, and we'll chase after these things like idols, and, and then we'll end up heartbroken and empty. And one of the things we should be learning from this, which, which Jonah should be learning here, um, which he articulates in his prayer, is that sin itself leads to this kind of heartbreak and despair. Sin is its own punishment. It's not that God is angry and has abandoned us and is arbitrarily flinging punishment on us. It's that, what else would you expect? You've gone away from the very source of life. There's nothing out there for you. Which is why all it takes is one turning to go back to God, to receive his love and his grace and his mercy. 
his opinion about you has not changed. His nature has not changed. Um, you are the one who has turned away and the one who needs to turn back. This is also why salvation has to be more than forgiveness. It has to also involve transformation. Um, because sin is inherently destructive in and of itself. We need to be more than just forgiven of our sins. We need to be released from our slavery to sin. Uh, think of it as a meth addict. Okay? I think drugs versus traffic laws are a great example of this. Um, when you break a traffic law, you hopefully, I'm thinking, unless you're very sensitive, do not feel guilty about it. Maybe you should feel guilty. I don't know. I'm not taking a stance as a pastor. But when I break a traffic law, I don't feel guilty about it, right? It's an arbitrary law that someone made up that I don't know. It's 55 miles per hour somewhere, right? And we're going through it, and, and I, I'm not losing sleep at night. I can be forgiven of it and move on with my life. Sin, though, I don't think is like that. It's not this arbitrary law that you break. Sin is much more personal and relational and inherently destructive. Sin is like someone who's addicted to, to methamphetamine. Um, if they continue to do it, the natural inherent result is death and destruction. There's despair. And the, the meth addict needs more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness by itself really, in the end, might mean nothing to them. Forgiveness without transformation. What the addict needs is to be freed, is to be transformed. Because their self-destructive behavior is itself its own punishment. This is how sin functions in our life and how detours should train our minds and our hearts and our souls. Almost like a dog that you have to spray bitter tasting spray on like the couch to make them stop eating away at the couch. God's training us when we go down these dead ends and we realize this bottoms out on us. He's training us. You can't find life there. You can't find life there. You can't find life there. It's only here. Detours teach us that sin is its own punishment. And then the last truth from this passage that I'd like to explore this morning is detours or paradoxically, for those with faith, our path into life. Uh, it's actually through the belly of the fish, through the depths of the sea, that we find ourselves vomited back up onto the land and ready to go on with the life God has for us. Um, Jonah is vomited up. You've got to love that verb here. Um, this is no great, clean act of rescue. This is a bit of indigestion, okay? Um, the, the text almost gives the indication that the fish itself can't stand Jonah. <laughs> Jonah is such a miserable prophet. Jonah is such this comedic failure that the fish itself vomits him back up onto the land. And Jonah now is back where he's supposed to be, a little nicked up, with a good story to tell, with some mess maybe to wipe off himself, <coughs> ready to go on with this path. And this is often how it functions in our lives. You could describe the Christian life uh, as this constant dying, this constant martyrdom. In fact, the scriptures do this often. Um, to follow Christ is to die repeatedly, to die to yourself repeatedly, to die to other things repeatedly, to feel the weight of death, to feel the weight of suffering. And it's paradoxical because it's in that dying that we also receive Christ's life and are also able to give off Christ's life to the people around us. Um, again, keep your fingers here, but flip to 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes this paradoxical experience of, of living the death of Christ in our lives, but also at the same time receiving and living the life of Christ in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Paul says this, But we... 
have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Jesus uses language similar to this. He says, to follow me, you'll daily need to take up your cross. You'll need to deny yourself. You'll need to follow me. Paul says his experience of being a minister is one of consistently dying, of feeling the weight of death, feeling the weight of dying to himself and to things around him. But yet, that's also paradoxically the way he receives Christ's life when he comes to the end of himself. That's also the way, paradoxically, he gives Christ's life to other people when they see his resurrection power at work in him. Jonah has vomited back into life after this detour, and I think that is the pattern for us as well. Um, The symbolism of Jonah's walking into being thrown into the water and then being brought back out of the water, I think, should evoke for you and I as Christians the symbolism of baptism. Um, We are united with Christ in his death, uh, and it's in this paradoxical union and death where we're crucified with Christ, where our waters, our heads come under the water in baptism that we receive life, that we're able to walk in a newness of life. In fact, it's through Jesus' own paradoxical journey through death that we receive life. Jesus, like Jonah, follows a similar pattern into life. We go back to verse 17 in chapter 1. Jonah's in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Um, Jesus himself in Matthew 12 will reference this. People will ask Jesus for a sign. And he'll say, this evil and adulterous generation, all they want are signs. He says, here's the sign I'll give you, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as he was in the ground, or in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And he says, those who don't believe will be judged by the Ninevites. They're able to believe based on the sign of Jonah. You and I are called to believe based on the greater one. He says, the greater one has come than Jonah. It's Jesus' own paradoxical journey through death into life, into victory, that gives us our identity, that gives us our victory, that gives us our assurance that even when we detour, even when we go off the path, we can come back at any moment and receive the Lord's grace and love and life and joy in our lives. So this morning, as we come to the table, we come as people um, who are aware that the story of Jonah creates this itch in us that can only be scratched by Jesus. Jonah creates this thirst in us that can only be fulfilled by Jesus, the one who who went into death for three days and came out of death on our behalf, the one who died and now lives again, the one who we follow, the living Christ. Even as we take these detours, which we all take, this is why we practice (coughs) in it, because we're all full of sin, we're all broken. Even in the midst of these detours, the risen Christ calls us to follow him, calls us to understand that there's nowhere we can go that's too far away from his call and his presence. Calls us to realize that at all moments we're called to turn back to him in whatever form that might take for us. And calls us to recognize that that we need to learn more and more to hate sin and to love righteousness. Not because of some arbitrary rule, but because one is where death is found and one is where life is found. And so would you come this morning as we worship the one greater than Jonah uh, who has died and, and rose again for our